In part two of our conversation with Roz Grodson, we have an opportunity to talk about her one-woman show of Emma Goldman. Emma Goldman is not a person who people are all that familiar with today, but in her time, she was an extraordinary figure. Look her up on Google, and the first word that will appear is anarchist. Ultimately, Emma Goldman was deported from this country for her activities. She was open. She was modern. She was an extraordinary orator and drew people in the thousands to come and hear her words. But at the essence of the person was this sense of justice, this belief that we can make the world better and it is our responsibility. From that perspective, Emma Goldman was a very, very committed Jew, not religiously, but in the essence of her being was that Pintaliyid. In retrospect, I believe that Roz Grodson was attracted to Emma Goldman for all of those reasons. Her modernity, her daring, that sense of justice. A woman who was faced with a variety of challenges and met each one fearlessly. This podcast is a conversation about Emma Goldman, but in many ways, it's a conversation about Roz Grodson as well. We pray that her soul will be bound up in the bond of eternal life. Zecher Sadiq Livracha, may the memory of a righteous person always be for a blessing. Thank you very much for sitting down again. It's my pleasure, Rabbi. Like many people who were educated in the public school system, uh, I had heard of the name of Emma Goldman, never learned anything real about her because she was written out of the history books. Well, let me stop there. Why was she written out of the history books? Because the government had to get rid of her. And that's because Business she was an anarchist. She was because she was an anarchist, wasn't because it? Because she fought for immigrants' rights and for justice, the labor movement. She fought for labor. And the uh, big business could not afford to listen and tolerate her because they needed cheap labor. This was the wave of immigration at the beginning of the century, from, oh, from the end of the 19th beginning of the 20th century. They needed these poor immigrants to work at sweatshop wages. And Emma was popular throughout the country. She attracted more people at her lectures than any other speaker in the United States. And they couldn't let her go on like this. this it, was eventually, also... they deported her on trumped-up charges. And where did they deport her to? Russia, where she was born. Actually, it was Kovno, Lithuania, but, you know, the borders change. So as a young woman in her life in Lithuania, she was exposed to the uh, worst forms of subjugation. Yes. Anti-Semitism. Yes. And at home, domestic violence. Absolutely. She had a very cruel childhood. Her father was a taskmaster, to say the least. She was punished often because she was the rebellious child. And she had the temerity to say that her teachers were ignorant but I think she really knew more than her teachers. She was very well-read, and she was very observant uh, about society, what was going on about her. And her home, though strictly orthodox in the general way that those homes were in those days in Lithuania, her father stuck to the word, but he didn't have the spirit of Judaism. He was cruel to his wife and to his daughters, and he happened to be a very... One could have sympathy for these men who... Limit, limited who, sympathy, but sympathy. Limited sympathy to, 
they were frustrated, they were disappointed, they didn't have the opportunities to take care of their families. He went in and out of business many times, uh, failure. But, let, but, but be that as it may, I, I'm really grateful that you brought in a Passover reference, <laughs> speaking about uh, Emma Goldman as the wicked child or the yeah. rasha. Because the reality is, is that her story is a freedom story. Yes. She devoted her life to not simply equality, but what would have been, would appear to be a radical notion of freedom at that time. And it's interesting, when I have thought about it, where did she get these, these ideas? It's kind of like osmosis. Nobody sat down and taught her these things. Mm-hmm. Nobody inspired her to these things, not her family. Her outside contacts were limited. It has to be because something in the Jewish learning inspires young idealistic people to be just, to be fair, to be compassionate. Even though she didn't have respect for the rules of her religion, Mm -hmm. she had to absorb from her community, from her environment, from her schooling, which was obviously a Jewish school because girls didn't get into gymnasium. She had to have learned these things, maybe unconsciously, but it was imbued within her. I don't, I don't think it's an accident that these times produced people like Karl Marx, Trotsky. Ben-Gurion was a socialist. Mm-hmm. They were idealists. They dreamed not of the, the world as it was, but the world as it could be. And I think what you are getting to is the fact that these are Jewish values that come out of the prophetic tradition. Absolutely. And being an iconoclast is as basic to Judaism as Abraham and Sarah. So it's not all that surprising that, that Emma Goldman would be cut from this cloth, whether or not she was identifying these issues or surfacing them at the time. Interestingly, in the same period of time, the people who were the greatest labor leaders in this country came from this part of the world. Mm -hmm. They were yeshiva bochers, most of them. They were learned in Torah and Talmud because the boys were. These were the smartest and the brightest. They had the best background of Judaism. They came to this country and sacrificed everything for the labor movement. And Emma Goldman was one of those people. You mentioned a moment ago that she was the most sought after of these barnstorming speakers that went around the country, and that it wasn't simply the the people who would have you would have expected to come to these rallies, but she drew people from all levels of society. And all ethnicities. She was fluent in German and Russian and Yiddish, so she could correspond easily with almost all the immigrants that came to this country. And she must have had a rare charisma. She was that good-looking. She was that imposing-looking. She looked like a dowdy grandmother most of her life. But she attracted people not only to her cause, and I mean the aristocrats of America who supported her magazines and her her work, uh, the Mayflower Group, but also the common workers and lovers. This surprised me, and I wanted to find out more Why was this woman so attractive that men offered to send her to Europe to study medicine? They offered to finance her writings. They offered 
uh, her every luxury. How did you get? How did you hear about her? How did you even well, know? Well, as to... I said in my beginning, I only heard the name Emma Goldman as a crazy anarchist, you know, and never really had any respect or interest in knowing any more about her. About oh, maybe almost ten years ago now, there seemed to be a renewed interest that a few books were written about her and her soulmate through her life, Sasha. And I read a blurb on one of these books that came out as a review saying that she was a party girl and she had these serial lovers. She loved music. She loved dance. She loved drinking. She loved the life. <laughs> and I thought how, how unusual for one body to encompass all these different characteristics. So I took out her autobiography to read called My Life and I was enchanted. I fell in love with the woman. What caught your attention? Well, like they say about Cleopatra, her infinite variety. Hmm. <laughs> I was mainly attracted to finding out what it was about her that attracted so many people. Are there any recordings of her voice? Not that I have ever found. It seems that she was um, not even interested in recording. She was interested in writing, but not. Uh, she never broadcast, even though she lived until 1940 even though she was in exile. But she never seemed to want to put down any kind of formal record of her work, except through her writing, uh, her books. So you went out and you developed a play about a woman who was feared by the business tycoons of her age, and a woman who was uh, respected by the have-nots in the society. So how do you put together a play about such a person? What did you want to draw out in her? How did you want the audience to react? What did you want people to gain from the experience of your one-woman show? Well, not being a psychologist, I couldn't tell you how she acquired all these different uh, facets to her character. I studied. I studied her book. And you learn a lot about how a person describes themselves, how they describe their own journey. And I saw this child who was unusually bright, fighting for justice, working in sweatshops, being inspired by the people who were trying to better the lives through labor laws. So inspired. And interestingly enough, it started with her learning about the Haymarket riots in Chicago. She was working with her sister at a sweatshop in Rochester, New York, which was where they came when they immigrated. When she read about the Haymarket riots... She was so fired with the need to do something about it. She started subscribing to the anarchist newspaper because these men who were hung were hung because they were anarchists. Not because they started the riots, not because they did anything violent, they were anarchists. So she read and studied the anarchist movement and decided at the age of 20 to take $5 in her sewing machine, because in those days you had to own your own sewing machine to get a job in a sweatshop. Took it to New York to find work and be mentored by the leaders of the movement. And her adventure started almost immediately. They saw something in Emma that they trained her at once to speak to the immigrant groups. And she found she was successful at it. It made her weep for joy to think that she could sway people with words. And to inspire them to act. Right. And she did. She was very successful. The labor movement would have succeeded much earlier and in a much greater strength had the United States government, not shot at strikers. But she didn't simply speak about 
being active. She she acted. She acted. Why she why was, did she why did people think she was an, an anarchist? Well, this is very interesting. She was an anarchist. She believed in the total freedom of anarchy. She, you know, a lot of the socialists were thought to be anarchists. A lot of the anarchists were thought to be socialists. Actually, I suppose two, those two philosophies could be in one body, but she had no respect for the socialists because they didn't go far enough. And she believed in total freedom. She believed, it's hard for me personally to accept this, that if you leave people to themselves, they will learn how to cooperate and how to govern themselves in a just way. I'm a little more cynical than that. However, <laughs> Emma was younger than I. I think the longer you live, the more cynical you become. But um, she was true to those values. She never wavered because she believed, if you believe in freedom, you have to believe in freedom to love. You have to believe in freedom to work. You have to believe in freedom to be creative, to enjoy the beauty in the world, to enjoy art, to enjoy nature. You have to be given free time to be free. Her lover, Sasha, said to her, when she proposed the idea of having another lover besides him, he said, if I believe in freedom, I have to believe in your freedom to love. So in a way, she was uh, a captive of her, own, of her own view of freedom. How do you mean? In other okay. words, her commitment to freedom was total. Total. And, and, and even if it meant that she was making decisions that were not in her best interest, that didn't speak to her, she was compelled to follow yes, that. Yes, to, li to live her own, her own truth, philosophy. Yeah. It's very amazing to think, almost 150 years ago, Emma started her, her work in about 1889, to think that she was fighting for the very same things we are still arguing and fighting about today. She was fighting for homosexual rights and freedom, birth control, women's pay, equal pay. So Roz, if we could bring Emma Goldman to Chicago in 2019, how do you think she would respond to the world in which we live? I think Emma would say, have you learned nothing? So she wouldn't be pleased. No, she would say, these are the very same things that we fought for more than 100 years ago. Haven't you made up your minds yet? that this is the best way to live? So she would really see us as uh, not only not going forward, but in some ways probably going backwards. Recalcitrant, yes. Stubborn, stiff-necked. Do you think that her Judaism, that she was aware of her Judaism or that she was an identified Jew in any way? Or is it only by default, only in the face of persecution? Interestingly enough, she took pains to deny her religiosity in any way. She said to other people who were working with her, she said, no, I do not believe these things because I am Jewish. I believe these things because it is just. Judaism has nothing to do with it. I think this is a reaction to her father and to her very difficult upbringing. Well, but she's not unique in this way. I mean, many Jews of her time were very focused on the issues of justice at, at their time without the shackles, as they would have seen it, of Judaism. In the play that you put together, how did you end the play? Unfortunately, her ending was not happy. She had been exiled, but was able, by having a uh, proxy marriage to a British citizen, mm -hmm. was able to live in France because they had a, some kind of a arrangement where if you were a French citizen, you could, an English citizen, you could live in France. 
and she wanted to live simply. She had a little cottage near the sea, paid for by American artists, mainly, who were her devoted followers. People like Peggy Guggenheim, Paul Robeson, Eugene O'Neill. Artists admired her a great deal. Of course, the artists, you know, is said that uh, they lean to the left a bit. But in those days, particularly because of the Red Scare, artists were on the side of justice and not the bigotry and the bias against people who didn't fit. Well, they paid for this little villa that she had. And so she was able to live out her life there. And then she heard that Sasha, who remained in Germany to continue his writings, died. And she very briefly, you know, reviews her life. Like, what did it all mean? Nothing has changed. And she realizes she is totally alone, bereft of her, her supportive friend, and the world has not changed. This happened to be just at the end of the Sacco-Vanzetti trial, that she was miserable to know what was happening in her country, that the state of Massachusetts had not learned anything in all those years. So she's left with this bitter feeling, this loneliness, that her life didn't mean anything. So she felt like a failure at the end of her life. Absolutely. Well, that's a tragedy, isn't it? And yet you have taken the time to resurrect her, to allow us to feel some of her fire and to hear her message and also, I think, to appreciate her relevance, which is a great tribute. Well, I was surprised to learn from members of the audience that she continues to live with many people today. A woman in the audience told me that her son goes to Waldheim Cemetery where Emma is buried. She wanted to be buried there because that's where the Haymarket uh, rioters were buried. So where did she die? She died in this country. They allowed her to come back for medical uh, treatment. She'd had a stroke mm. in, uh, in France. They allowed her to come back for medical treatment. So she was buried at Waldheim, and this woman told me her son goes on Emma's birthday every year and plays the guitar for her. She has visitors to her grave regularly. There are people, the people are the elder Jews who are the socialists who came to this country, the Jewish socialists. They still revere her and remember her and have so much knowledge about her and the time because they too were firebrands. So it was a surprise to me to know that uh, Emma's spirit is still alive. I'm so happy for that. If you had a chance to meet her, we could conjure her up. What question would you ask her? I would be so intimidated by Emma Goldman. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even think of a question. First of all, I don't think she would have any respect for me. I think that she might tolerate me as an artist, but that I hadn't done enough. And who was I to question her? <laughs> I, I, I think she looked down on me, really. Mm. But um, one thing I was interested in is she explains why she never wanted to have children. I think that would have been a mistake. I think she would have been a wonderful person to have had children. Um, I wondered why she, I would wonder, even though she plainly states it, why she didn't want a family life, a normal family life. She was very domestic, very maternal. I finally reasoned out why she had all these lovers who followed her, even after the romances were over, they still continued to work with her. She had developed such a maternal way of treating people that many young men needed and wanted this kind of comfort and mentoring in their life. And they looked to Emma first as a lover and then as an aunt or, <laughs> or a mother or a grandma. <laughs> well, 
again, we come back to a very Jewish place, that this idea of being a maternal figure, but also a powerful force really does speak to the Jewish women of the Bible and our tradition. Raz, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us, but most importantly, the time that you've taken to bring Emma Goldman to life again. Thank you for speaking with us today. It's a pleasure. And I want to tell you, there is a, uh, a recorded video of my life and my life with Emma Goldman. Well, we're going to make that available to the congregation. Thank you again.